I think I'd be ignorant to say that Christianity is the only right religion. I don't know what the right religion is. It's just what I believe it is. Some people that I've met, it's just I've had friends, and and the minute they find out about me, or the minute that I I do anything that doesn't follow their religion, I'm they they don't want anything to do with me. There's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad that can come out of it. And I'm not sure if it's from religion that the bad or the good comes out of it, or whether it's the people. I respect a lot of faiths and. I think that Christianity is a pillar that's influenced by the other great religions in the world. La cristianidad es muy importante porque podemos aprender valores cristianos donde no podemos, donde descubrimos más acerca de nosotros. My view on anyone who claims to have a monopoly on truth is that there's no one truth about anything. I think that a lot of religions say the same thing in different ways. Yeah, that's a sentiment that a lot of us have heard in conversation probably about religion as we talk to people out there in our lives. You kind of get this sense that the culture in total has believed the idea that whatever you believe, whatever faith system you aspire to is okay with you and we need to respect that. And also I ask that you respect mine. We live in a pluralist culture culture that accepts a lot of different faiths and embraces a difference of opinion. So today our topic is, as has been said, is Christianity too narrow? Now what do we mean by that? That narrowness word actually comes from the scripture, the narrow way versus the broad way. And this is something that V referred to a few minutes ago. The idea that Jesus defines the faith in a very narrow way. Jesus uses these absolutes, uses these um, specifics about how the kingdom of God works. And so you can look at what Jesus says and make conclusions that there are going to be some people who are not going to be involved in the kingdom of God. Our culture does not want to hear that message. Our culture does not want to hear the news that somebody's not going to be included. So today we're going to talk about the ins and outs of why that is, and we're going to explore together the idea, is Christianity too narrow? Would you pray with me before we start? Let's bathe this whole thing in prayer and just ask for God's voice. On this day, on this Lord's Day, God, we ask for your presence, and we ask for you to come and do the unpacking. We ask for you to come and do the teaching. Instruct each one of us in our hearts what this dynamic looks like to a world who has moved beyond the assumption that Christianity is it. We live in a post-post-Christian world, God, and you know because you've allowed us to go here, and maybe the reason you've allowed us to go here is that so we can be used by you uh, to preach the good news or share the good news or live the good news of Jesus in a way that people can understand wherever they are in life, uh, whichever God or whichever un-God someone might believe in. So God, we ask that you come and speak. We ask that you come and make yourself clear and known. We ask that we would know you in a new way and explore together who you are from the world's point of view. In your name we pray and together we say amen and amen. Well, as I said, this is, a, is Christianity Too Narrow Sunday. This is the fourth of seven weeks, as V shared earlier. We've got three more weeks to go, but I hope you've been finding, as we've been going through this series, some value in entertaining these questions, even if you are a believer. If you are a believer in Jesus, entertaining questions like this really just does two things in your life. One, 
It causes your faith to grow when you understand sort of the context and the answers to these questions as we find them in the faith. But then secondly, it also prepares you. Prepares you for what? It prepares you for conversations you might have with other people who aren't here on Sunday mornings and who would not darken the door of a church. Someone out in the world who is seeking God or is curious about God, but doesn't have a venue to ask these questions. You become that venue. You become the church where you are when you entertain these questions. We've talked about a number of different faiths accepted in our culture. And as you look at the symbols on the screen, and if you're listening by podcast, you see some representations or we see some representations on the screen of faiths such as Islam or Hinduism, Judaism, Sikhism, uh, Buddhism is up on the screen and also a cross to represent Christianity. These are the major world religions, not to mention others that we could go on and on and on listing on screen where the screen would not be big enough. There are so many different religions and so many different faiths. And at the same time, you've also got a dynamic, especially in the United States, of an unreligious belief. The idea that we can believe what we believe about life as Americans, not necessarily with a God in the picture. You could call that atheism or agnosticism, which by the way, both of those belief systems require belief. Everyone believes something. If people don't believe in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 100% of the time they believe in something else. Even if someone says, I don't believe in anything, that's actually a belief. The belief in nothing is a belief. And so what happens is as we study Jesus, we see Jesus come along and we see Jesus not necessarily shunning other faiths that he interacts with uh, people in, but we see him acting in the midst of the practice of those faiths. One of them is Judaism. And then others are a pluralistic society, Greek society that recognizes a whole bunch of gods. Those gods that are recognized in the Avengers movies like Thor. There were people who actually believed in Thor back then, that he was the real deal. Jesus didn't shun those people. Jesus found reasons to eat with them and hang out with them and share himself with them. Something has happened in the Christian church that we know that has changed our ability to interact with people of different belief systems in a way. I'd like to ask you to explore this with me just a little bit as we get into the claims of Jesus. As has been said, and I want to quote this scripture from Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate, Jesus says, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to what? To destruction. Destruction of what? Your soul and then your body. And many enter through it, the scripture says, but verse 14, Matthew 7 says, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Elsewhere, it's been written in John, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, why don't we know where you are going and how can we know the way? You know, we seek to look, live, and love more like Jesus. The first disciples also had that desire. They were asking him, how can we follow you? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then emphasizing no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. 
From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What you see here is an uncomfortable exclusivity. Now, what does that word mean? It's basically a big word that says some people right here have it and you people out there do not. The people who are in here got it and all y'all out there don't have it. And if y'all wanna get what I got, you gotta do this. And the unbelieving world or the world around us that believes in other gods would look at that and have questions. Questions like, is your faith really the real one? How can we trust that when you act the way you do and exclude us from your presence and from your gatherings and from your benevolence, from your service, that we should believe that you have a God who is real. The world looks at us and looks at our leaders failing and falling in the news and points the finger and says, what is this Christianity but just a ruse, a fake, a false religion? And yet Jesus remains, even in spite of our failings, in spite of the ways that as leaders we might have messed up. Jesus still stays. I wanna throw you a little bit of a curveball this morning and challenge how the world, how the challenge in your mind, how the world might see Christianity. Maybe you have even had some of these thoughts yourself. So take a look at this. Huge percentages of people, you know, 91% believe that Christians are anti-homosexual, 87% believe that we're hypocritical, 84% believe that we're judgmental. I had never written a book before, and I, I wrote this book. It's called Unchristian. It's really like a, a book about all the negative perceptions that people have about Christians. And we're trying to help bring some reality, uh, a dose of reality um, to the Christian community to try to have this inside-outside conversation about the fact that the, the population feels this way about, about Christians, and we're, we're known to be hypocrites. I mean, there's so many things about Christianity in this country and in my church and in my life that it is not very likable. It's not very, it's not very Christian. <laughs> we seem to wrestle with who we are and who we're becoming. We seem to ha have some of the, the, the most profound moments of goodness and then the, the most depraved moments of, of darkness in our lives. That, that's just true of us. One of the huge challenges that we have as Christians is that there's so many of us that, that say we're Christian, and I, I wonder whether that's, that's really the case. Like, are we just a, like socially Christian, culturally Christian, but no longer really following Jesus? And so I think this idea of like, everyone likes God and most people like Jesus and fewer people like the church is the best way to put it, is that there's this, like the, the, the least favorable part of religion is organized religion in our country today. Maybe our whole idea of being a part of, of church and being a part of organized religion is, is off base, that we've made you know, something more like a gym to be a member of rather than a movement to be, uh, to be a part of. I also see times in, in the things that we work on with faith communities, you see people bringing some of the best things to their communities. Um, they're, they're, they're serving the homeless or they're, they're working with, uh, with at-risk teenagers or they're, they're willing to do uh, and invest in young lives in ways that 
are really a personal cost to themselves. And among this group of people called evangelicals, even though they have a terrible reputation in many ways, they actually give something like 10 times more money towards charities and towards churches than anyone else uh, in our culture. They have a lot that they don't do right, but there's some things that are really amazing about their lives and the way they give and the way that they care for their communities and the way that they, um, they invest in others. And I think that's an example of, of faith really working. Yeah, in a broken world, faith still works and faith still does some good stuff. Even there, there's some broken stuff out there. And I think where that comes from is an idea, and I know there are those that, that would agree with this. I think where that comes from is an idea that folks have ascribed to churchianity instead of Christianity in our current culture. Now, there's a religion going on uh, in our churches these days that worships the church and the things of the church more so than the following of Jesus. And these are the things that the unbelieving world or the world that worships other gods would look at and point a finger at and say, look, that's false. You know what? In that case, I agree. I agree with them. There is brokenness. There is uh, falsehood. There is inconsistency. There is abuse. There's stuff going on in the church. When we focus on the church itself too much and not on the one who made it. Here's another idea. The idea is that religion in and of itself by definition is people's attempt to reach God or to find God. Have you ever talked to someone who said, I'm not very religious. And in that moment, you're tempted to say, well, that's okay. You can become more religious. Or maybe they're saying that to you because they believe you are religious. But in that moment, you can actually say, if you're a Christian, in that moment, you could actually say, that's okay. I'm not religious either. Here's the reason why. Because those of us who trust in Jesus and follow him know that we cannot reach God. We cannot please him. There's nothing about us that can be pleasing to a holy and perfect God because of sin. This is what makes Christianity different is the idea that it's God's plan to reach people. And God finishes his plan. He not only tells you what he's getting ready to do in the scripture, but he tells you how he's going to do it. He's going to redeem the whole world through this Jesus. And the redeem word, a churchy word, is the idea of reclaiming or remaking something that is broken and lost. The idea is like this. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, whose word we read a little bit earlier from Acts 17, finds himself in Athens on top of a very cool-looking big rock called Mars Hill also called the Areopagus. And in fact, to this day, there's a plaque. You can see that if you're, uh, if you're looking at the right-hand side of the screen listening by podcast, there's a plaque over on the right-hand side uh, of the, the area where they would gather that has Paul's message to the Athenians there at the Areopagus. And as he's giving that message, he's on top of that rock and he's looking out all over Athens and seeing the beautiful spread of land there. And he's seeing all the religious temples 
and all of the uh, symbols and all the idols of the gods that they worship. See, back then, they were very much like the United States of America today. Their people were pluralistic in their beliefs. They accepted and were open to different religions. And not only were they open and welcoming to them, but they allowed shrines and temples to be built all around to accommodate people's individual choices of beliefs. So the Apostle Paul was standing on top of this big rock one day, looking at all those different temples and had a conversation with people that went this way. And what I want you to do before we read that scripture again is think about these ways in which Paul interacted with people. The first thing he did was he asked them questions about the gods that they were worshiping. He looked around and he noticed what was going on in their life and he asked them about them. He then complimented their search. You seem to be very religious people, he said, as evidenced by all the idols and shrines around him. And then he shared the good news of Jesus with gentleness and respect, just like Peter asks us to do when asked about the reason for your faith, give the reason for your faith, but with gentleness and respect. And what, the way this worked is it could have been seen back then in Athens that the message he gave was exclusive and shut people out. But Paul did not envelop his message from that point of view. Instead, he made it wonderfully, simply inclusive. And here's what I mean by that. We're going to take a look right into the scripture as he's talking. Paul says this, he says, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in any of the temples you see around you built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And then look at this. Pay attention to the simple inclusive message that he's sharing here. He says, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history, the boundaries of their lands. Look at this. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. It's a quote of scripture there. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Whose offspring? From Paul's point of view, as he taught those Athenians who were open-minded about religion, he was explaining to them an unknown God. And in fact, there was a, um, an idol there, a bare idol that was named to an unknown God. Paul saw the opportunity presented to him to explain to them in their language in a way that would help them in a way that would connect them with God, even by quoting their own literature, appealing to the idea that even they believed and accepted that they were the child of some God, even if they didn't know exactly who he was. But he goes on and says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, the God you don't know yet, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the div divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Now, he doesn't use this word as an insult. Look at it. 
from a different point of view. He uses it as a way to build a bridge and talk about the grace of God. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And in parentheses, I put one man. Why is that? Because if you can accept the idea that there is a God and that he created all humanity through one man, Adam, who began the human race, and if you can accept the idea that sin or brokenness from God came through one man, then doesn't it make sense that it takes one man to come and undo the brokenness of the originator? One man. For as a race, we know that it's possible for us to start with one man if he has a wife and they can have children. We believe that Adam and Eve had children and that the gene pool was so big that those children had children and those children had children and filled and populated the whole earth. If we can accept that idea that we came from a creator and not from a cesspool or a pile of mud, then we can also accept the idea that we came from one man and that it takes one man to undo the brokenness that came along with the first man. This is not being exclusive. This is simply talking about the way God loves. He loves by creating one man in his image, whom he loved and his wife, whom he also loved, giving them God's love to share between them and giving them the ability to reproduce. He then comes along in history and provides one man to undo the sinfulness and brokenness of the originator. It's not that it is exclusive. It's wonderfully, beautifully efficient. And here's how that looks. Jesus doesn't come and die on the cross for our sins, rise again from the grave, and ascend into heaven and sit down at the right hand of his father to rule over all the universe just to pass on the work of being saved to you and me. He doesn't do that. He does that work and then ascends into heaven and sits with his father so that he can now take the message that that one man has undone all the sin and brokenness that came through the first one as one man. And by faith and by trust in that one man as redeemer, he gives us to a way, he gives us a way to know God that we would not be able to experience if the burden of saving ourselves was on us. God is beautifully, wonderfully efficient. He sees the need for one man to come to fix the whole world's problems. Think about it this way. Did you know the earth sits on an axis that's tilted? at 23 and a half degrees. So the earth revolves around the sun and how many times a year does it go all the way around the sun? Science majors? 
I hear some different numbers, but I also hear once, right? It goes around the sun one time, but the way it goes around the sun is tilted at 23 and a half degrees, give or take, right? What would happen if the earth tilted all the way over to a 90 degree tilt? Now look at the picture up on the screen. If you're listening by podcast, imagine the earth rotating around the sun and being tilted to 90 degrees where the poles are facing the sun. If our polar ice caps were facing the sun half of the year, and we've got two polar ice caps rotating around the earth, what would happen to the ice in the polar ice caps as they were facing the sun more directly? They would melt, kind of like the snow is melting in the parking lot at Burkett Freshman Center this morning, but it would be rapid. And what would happen is the oceans of the earth would start to do what? Fill and then do what? overtake the landmass. Conversely, if the earth were tilted back in the other direction and sat at zero degrees, it would rotate around the sun in such a way that it would destroy all seasons. So if that had happened when we were back on last Wednesday during Chiberia's polar vortex, we would have been stuck there forever in that temperature. Now, I don't know about you, but my tires were deflated that day. That was the worst thing that happened to me. But I know that there were people working outside in those conditions. There were people suffering, people who lost power, people who didn't have the conveniences that we normally have. A few degrees tilted in either direction directly affects exactly what's going on in earth around us right now. So if the earth were to tilt in a way that was either away from or toward the sun, there would be a dramatic effect in our lifestyle, wouldn't it? And there's no scientist on the planet Earth who would disagree with that idea. Now, let me ask you a question. If you believe that the Earth is tilted at 23 and a half degrees, aren't you being exclusive? Well, yeah but you're being wonderfully inclusive of all life on earth, aren't you? You could demand or require that the earth be tilted at 90 degrees with a very different effect. Think about it. It is the attitude of heart with which we come to the information. If we're tilted at 23 and a half degrees for a purpose and we trust that that purpose has meaning, then we don't want that 23 and a half degrees to be changed, do we? It is the key to our life on earth. And if that 23 and a half degrees were changed dramatically, what would happen to life on earth? It would be utterly devastated or changed forever, wouldn't it? That is the same urgency with which the Lord Jesus went to the cross and gave his life. And when he did that, he didn't put other conditions on belief in that act. He simply said, trust and believe. You know, I think it was Linda that referred to this scripture earlier, and I just want to read it out. By the way, you guys should know that the readers and prayer leaders and Vendetta and I, we don't collaborate on the things that we say to you on Sunday mornings. We simply trust in the guidance of the Holy Spirit before we get here. And I find more often than not, 
The Holy Spirit weaves a picture together with all of the things we say in spite of us. And I love that about us. I think that's powerful. Look at what the scripture says. I urge then, Timothy says, first of all, uh, or Paul says to Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That's why we do the prayers of the church every week. Paul is urging us to do this. For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Whose holiness? Jesus's holiness, right? This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who, quote, wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The truth about what? The truth about Jesus. That he came and made freedom and power and purpose and redemption and meaning available to how many people? All people, even people who will not acknowledge that he is God. Even all of us. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom, the scripture says, for all people. The idea becomes this. When you run into the notion that Christianity is exclusive and off-putting, it's simply a misunderstanding. We don't have to argue, fuss, and fight. We simply share with those who don't know yet how wonderfully, simply inclusive the idea of Jesus is. And if you need a scripture to refer to, refer to this one. We've got it in black and white. God wants all people to be saved. Now, will all people be saved? The Bible also says, sadly, not everyone will be saved. People will refuse the good news of Jesus. God has given us that choice and that right. But for those of us who want to know God and want to know him in eternity, we have the way to know him. Is this exclusive? No. It's wonderfully inclusive. The only ones who exclude anyone from God is our own selves. When you share that good news with a cup of coffee, over a meal, in casual conversation, without thumping folks on the head with your Bible, people's hearts will melt and will be open to the truth. The way they were in Athens 2,000 years ago and the way they have all through history since then. Now, not everybody in Athens became a follower of Jesus. It was just a handful of people who decided to go on the narrow way. But the way they did it was ultimately cool and awesome. They simply said to Paul, we would like for you to come back and share more with us. They didn't go down to an altar and confess Jesus. They didn't raise their hands and join a class. They weren't sealed and stamped from the official office of the church. They simply said back to Paul, will you come and be with us some more so we can ask you some more questions? Do you see how the power of God works through gentleness and respect? Not compromising itself, 
not compromising its power, but working the way Jesus works. Would you join me in prayer? Dear God, thank you for the narrowness of your message and how that narrow message is broadly available to all people. Thank you for allowing us to understand the misunderstanding of the narrow way. Thank you for helping us to be in a position where we can share ourselves, not a doctrine, but ourselves, who we are as we trail along, stumbling, grasping, following after you. Christ, for those of us who are Christians, I admit, sometimes I buy into churchianity more than I do Christianity. And I lay that failure at the foot of the cross. And I ask you to take it away. And the next time I'm tempted to see the church, the workings of the church, the programs of the church, the finances of the church, even the opportunities of the church as more important than Jesus. Make that distinction again and remind me of the truth. Help me remember who you are and that my calling is to follow you. And folks, if you're an unbeliever and you're listening to this prayer, if you're even the slightest bit interested and open to the things of God. You are right where God wants you. Open your heart now and receive whatever he would say to, your next, to you next. For he will meet you there, as the scripture said, in the time and the place that he's designated for you. So we lift all these things to you, God, and as we respond in song now, we ask that you would stir our hearts, grow us closer in trust to you, in your name we pray and together we say, amen.